Well, it is a new year, and we are taking on a new endeavor here at Woodmont Baptist Church, reading through the Bible in 2017. And we're starting with Genesis. That's a good place to begin, as well as Matthew. You have an Old Testament reading for each day and a New Testament reading. So in case you get bogged down when we hit Leviticus and and Numbers and some of those types of books, that uh, you'll have a little New Testament uh, hope added in there as well to brighten your, your day. It, the thing about Genesis is it's, it's not only the first book of the Bible, but it's also the, the first book of the, the Hebrew Bible, the original Old Testament, right? And Genesis means beginning. And this is a new beginning for all of us, in a way. Woodmont is at a, a transitional time. It's a new beginning for a new year of 2017. There are lots of, of transitions and new beginnings. Matthew is also the first book of the New Testament. Again, a new beginning as we read through Matthew as well. I hope that's been life-giving for you. But for the next four weeks, I'm going to be preaching from Genesis as we walk through this foundational book of the Bible together. And last week, we, we read some from Psalm 119 about this beautiful song, this acrostic poem that's 176 verses long that are praising God for giving us His Word, for giving us His commandments, for giving us His precepts, for giving us His ways in which we should walk and live. And we see in that psalm how the psalmist loves God's Word and he yearns to conform to God's Word. And he delights in God's word more than in all riches, he says. And if we can have that same kind of outlook on God's word, then this year will be a life-changing one for us, I'm sure. We also read last week from Hebrews chapter 4 about how this is not a, a how-to manual. This is not a textbook. This is not a newspaper. This is a living and active document, sharper than any two-edged sword. So be careful when you open your Bibles. You never know what God's going to do. This is vastly different from how most people view the Bible these days, I think. You know, have you heard that, that the B-I-B-L-E is basic instructions before leaving earth? Have you heard that before? These are not basic instructions. You see, that at its core, if you really boil down the essence of the Bible, it's a story. It's a narrative. It's a grand narrative that covers the events of all things ever. It covers from before time began and all that existed was the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit whom we just sang about. The choir just extolled the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity that was pre-existent. And then the story tells about how the Holy Trinity decided to, to create the cosmos, the universe, and, and the earth. And how they, they put on that earth animals and plants and how they put the crown of creation, people, human beings in that earth. And then we, we see how the story goes into the, the entrance of sin and how a, a rescuer ends up coming, God himself, to save his people and to rescue the earth from the, the clutches and the bondage of sin. And then we see how the church has a part to play in that story. And then you see at the end about how God's going to come back and finish the work of redemption that he started 2,000 years ago with Jesus Christ. So as we read through this grand narrative together, it's important to remember the first act of the narrative. The first act of any drama is really important. It's crucial information for setting the stage for what will happen in the rest of that story. In the first act uh, of, of any drama, do you know what it's called? 
uh, go back to ninth grade English for a little bit, okay? What was the, the, the five acts of the play? Do you remember this? The first act was called the introduction or the exposition, I think some people call that. Is that right, teenagers? Have you all learned this? Exposition, okay? What happens in the exposition, do you remember? It's supposed to do some things, right? It's supposed to accomplish something for the rest of the story. First off, it, it introduces main characters, right? Remember this? It introduces, good. You've been out of school for a couple weeks, haven't you? Yeah. It introduces the main characters. That's important, right? What else does it do? It lays out the, the setting, right? This, yeah, thank you. The setting in which the main characters live and interact, right? It gives you the, the, the background. And it also introduces conflict into the story as well. Conflict is, is that without which there would be no story. Conflict is the thing that the hero, the protagonist, is bent on overcoming. Conflict is that which drives the plot of the entire story. So in our story, in the story of all things, the meta-narrative, we have Genesis given to us as the exposition. This is vitally important to understand the rest of Scripture in the context of the foundational book of Genesis. You know, Star Wars, when it first came out in 1977, I can't believe it was that old, and then the, the subsequent sequels that ended, the, the Return of the Jedi was 1983. Um, great movies, right? It was, they have grossed you know, millions and millions of dollars. And then in the 90s, George Lucas, the creator, went back and decided that there needed to be prequels, right? There needed to be background information on how Darth Vader came to be because it made the other original movies that much richer when you saw the background material. It informed those movies and gave us so much more information about how things came to be in the Star Wars universe that we knew already before. All these superhero movies now have origin stories, right? Batman Begins shows how he came to be Batman. Because when we know these background stories, it enhances our enjoyment of the original stories because we're privy to the information that led to how things are the way they are. Well, Genesis shows us how things came to be the way they are in our world today. And that's vitally important for us to live as wise people in this world. We must understand the exposition well. So, let's start this morning by talking about our beginning. Was this world always like this, this way? No, it wasn't. We know that this world, there once was a time in this world where there wasn't a thing called politics. There was once a time in this world where there wasn't a thing called cancer. There, there was a time in this world when there weren't broken families. There was a time even in this world when death itself wasn't a thing. We're going to talk about that this morning, how we got to be where things are today. When did it all go wrong? When did conflict enter the story? Genesis 3, of course. The students in our youth ministry, there's some here from Forest Hills, uh, we would do things where we would let them ask questions that they wanted to, and they would ask these really deep questions. They would ask things like, why is there always conflict in the Middle East? Or, you know, why is it that some people struggle with depression more than others? Really tough questions, and we would really get into these, these questions together. And eventually, I would keep giving them theological answers, and they would begin to caveat their questions with, don't just say Genesis 3. <laughs> don't just say Genesis 3. But it's, it's kind of true, isn't it? Because of Genesis 3, 
we have all these conflicts. We have violence. We have sickness. We have death. We have poverty. We have injustice because of Genesis 3. So let's read it together, starting in verse 1 this morning. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Before we go any further with this serpent, let's, let's back up a little bit and think about this. If Genesis is our exposition for the rest of the story, then it must introduce the main characters. So who are the main characters that get introduced in chapters 1, 2, and 3? Well, first off, who is the main character? God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's don't forget that. So often we read the Bible narcissistically, don't we? We tend to look in Scripture and say, where am I in here? We tend to look for our own reflection in Scripture because we're bent that way. It's part of our fallen fleshly nature. Let us not forget, this is a book about God. It's, he's the hero. He's the protagonist of this story. Who else is introduced in, in chapters 1 and 2? Yes, humans. We, we get introduced in those chapters. And humans are important because although we're not the hero, the hero loves us. The hero made us in his image. We are the crown of creation. I would also argue that creation itself is also a main character. You know, plants, animals, mountains, oceans, they all have a part to play in this story that is very crucial and important. Let's not forget that as well this morning. So, there's also one more person who gets introduced in this verse in chapter 3. The serpent. We don't get a lot of background information on the serpent. But when we keep reading this passage, it becomes clear that the serpent is God's enemy. The serpent is the one who's bent on thwarting the purposes of the protagonist, of the hero. He's the one who we would call the bad guy, right Jude? Whenever we read a, a book or, or watch a movie, Jude always wants to know, is, is that the bad guy? Is that the bad guy? Because it helps him make sense of the plot. You know who the hero is, once you know who the enemy is, then you have a story. It becomes clear in Genesis 3 that the serpent is the bad guy. He's the devil. He's Satan. And, and we really don't know the origin story really in full detail about Satan, but we get snippets of it throughout Scripture. We know that Satan was once a, a heavenly being. He was an angel of sorts that was created by God, and, and it was a good thing. But he rebelled sometime between Genesis 1:31, where God says all of creation was very good. Remember that? And sometimes between that and between chapter 3, Satan fell from heaven after rebelling against God and became evil. Evil entered into the world in the form of Satan sometime between chapter 1:31 and chapter 3. So we know from the start here in verse 1 that he's very crafty, it says. He was more crafty than any beast of the field. The King James says subtle. He's very subtle. It doesn't say he was smart, does it? It doesn't say he was powerful. It says he was crafty. You know, Satan's ways, his techniques are, are not so brilliant, right? They're, they're not so powerful. They're just really darn crafty, aren't they? And they're effective. Craftiness, the same old tired schemes of craftiness are effective. They're powerful, but they're not 
he's not the smartest thing. He's just really, really crafty. What does crafty mean? The, the dictionary says that crafty means clever in achieving one's aims by indirect or deceitful methods. Deceitful methods. To deceive means to lie, right? And Satan is a liar. Jesus himself tells us this in John chapter 8, verse 44. When Satan lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is how Satan operates, right? He, he's constantly whispering these lies into our ear, constantly, all day long. Yeah, you should do that thing. That sounds like fun. You should do it. Hey, this will make you happy. This will satisfy you. Or, no, you, you, you shouldn't do that thing that, that is selfless and giving of yourself. It's not going to be worth it in the end. Don't do that. Or, you're, you're too stupid. You can't do that. You're not smart. God doesn't love you. God condemns you. You're a horrible person. These are lies from the deceiver who's constantly whispering these into us because he's bent on destroying us. We know that too because Jesus says in John 10.10 that the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Our enemy is trying to destroy us physically, emotionally, spiritually. He's trying to ruin our lives. That's what he's about because he's God's enemy. And God desires for us to thrive and to flourish and to be happy. But Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy. So how does he do it? through craftiness, obviously. The first thing he says to Eve in verse 1 is, did God actually say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? No, God didn't say that at all. In fact, God said something more close to the opposite of that. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Satan says, did he really say? I can't believe it. What the rumor is that God said, you can't eat of any tree in the garden. I can't believe that. <laughs> Eve says, no, no, he didn't quite say that. And the truth is, God says, you can eat of every tree in the garden. God gives freedom. God's not a God of restriction. He's not a God of bondage. He's a God of freedom. Christianity is not meant to enslave. It's meant to set free. Let's don't forget that. So these trees that, that he says you can eat of, let's remember this too. They're not trees like you see down like on Hillsborough Road, okay? These trees are different. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. What, what are these trees that, are, that are, he's talking about you can have and you can eat of all of them? Verse 9 says, Out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Every single tree that is beautiful and every tree that is good for eating. That means, of course, there were coffee trees in the Garden of Eden because God's glorious gift to humans of coffee was found there in the Garden of Eden. Right, Mark Landers? I know you'd appreciate some coffee. Yes. And, and that must mean there must have been cacao trees as well because God's blessed gift to us of chocolate was there in the Garden of Eden. And have you ever had a fresh, ripe mango off the tree somewhere in the tropics? When we were in Puerto Rico, we would pick them off the tree, and it was one of the best things I've ever tasted. So fresh. Every tree that was good for food was in that garden, and they could eat of all of them except one. At the end of verse 16 and verse 17, God gives a parameter. 
He gives a one little rule, one little parameter on their lives. And, and he does this in our own lives to help us thrive, to help us flourish, to help us live the best lives we can by telling us, you don't want to do that. I promise it leads to death. He tells them in verse 16, you can eat of every tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Satan, by this one little lie of a question, did God really say, rumor is that you can't eat of anything. By asking that one little question, what he does is, is this crafty trick of getting Eve to turn her attention away from every good tree that they have in the garden to the one tree that she can't have. This is what Satan does in our lives, doesn't he? He loves to shift our focus away from all the good things that he's given us and just focus on the one thing that has been prohibited for, for our lives. How many marriages have been ruined? How many families have been broken? Because some husband or some wife doesn't recognize the good thing that God has given them in their spouse. And, and they go seeking that which is not theirs. How, how many uh, people are, are, are so miserable in their lives financially because even though they have a hoard of wealth, they, they only want more. They can't appreciate all that God's given them. So the, the key here for us then is to be grateful. This is why the Bible tells us over 73 times in the scriptures to give thanks, to count our blessings and realize what has been truly given to us and be grateful for it. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His love endures forever. Enter His gates with thanksgiving. And his courts with praise, give thanks to him, bless his name. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. God wants us to thrive. And if, if we're not counting our blessings and realizing how God has truly blessed us, then we are not capable of thriving in this life. We must take account of all the good things that God has given to us and be grateful and give thanks for them. So, back to chapter 3. Verse 2, how does Eve respond to God's, uh, to this, this, this question that the snake asked? In verse 2, she says, <laughs> let me get my Bible here in my notes. After the snake says, did God actually say you can't eat of any tree? Then Eve tells him, yes, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, that's, that's not what quite what God said either, is it? We just read in verse 217 where all God says is not to eat of it. See, I think Eve is starting to resent the fact that God's putting parameters on her life. She's starting to see him as a bully. She's starting to believe the lie that Satan's telling, that God is an authoritarian, patristic figure who's trying to keep poor little Eve down. She wants to be like God. So she says, we can't even... He says, not even touch it. No, he didn't. She's adding things to what God is saying because she's resenting God. Then Satan answers this with another crafty lie in verse 4. He says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, I think Satan is picking up on the fact that Eve is resenting God's patristic authoritarian nature here. 
I think he's playing to that notion and telling her that, oh, you can make your own rules. You can live your own life. You can really have freedom if you'll just rebel against God and, and disobey him. Then you'll really be able to, to make your own way in this world. And it sounds great what he's saying, doesn't it? I don't want to walk blindly through this world not knowing between good and evil. I want to know what's right. But the, the, the question is, can he deliver on what he's promising? Satan always over-promises and under-delivers. Always. Always throughout Scripture. Let's see what, what, what do they do here. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and ate. It says here, the tree was a delight to the eyes. Big deal. We just were told in verse 9 of chapter 2 that all the trees were pleasing to the eye. She just didn't see them. All she saw was the one tree that she couldn't have. Again, Satan, with that one little question, shifted her focus away from all that God's given her to the one thing that she shouldn't have. He always overpromises and underdelivers. And, and the, the, the funny thing is, too, he, he told her that you will be like God if you eat of this fruit. The, the irony there is that they already were. They were made in God's image. He was not. The heavenly beings don't even enjoy the status that we enjoy because we are made in God's image already. And he promises her that she will be like God and she doesn't recognize the fact that she already is like God. So what happens? Where's the big payoff? Let's see, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. All they got was knowledge of evil through experience, and then they got the gift of shame. Their reward for eating the fruit was the knowledge that, that they were naked, and so they were ashamed, and they made clothes for themselves. Guilt and shame is what they got for eating the fruit. Satan always overpromises and underdelivers. Then they also learn fear. Look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the, in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. How tragic and how sad. Human beings who are supposed to be the crown of creation, God's chosen possession for his own enjoyment, are now fearful of him. They are, are scared to even be seen by him. The one who created them and meant for them to rule over the earth as, as co-rulers with him, as, as vice regents, as stewards of the earth, are now reduced to hiding in fear in the trees. I, and I heard one Bible teacher who said that they probably weren't just hiding from fear of God either. Because at this point, uh, something had happened a dramatic change had taken place in the garden. You see, I, I don't know if they swallowed the fruit or not. It says that they, they, they took it and they, they were eating. But I, I'm convinced that as soon as they engaged in the act of disobedience, as soon as that fruit hit their mouths, that the, the Garden of Eden, this guy says, the Garden of Eden turned into Jurassic Park. That blood and guts and fur and feathers were flying all of a sudden because everything changed when sin entered the world. Death had not been known before on this earth, but since they disobeyed, the, the once docile animals whom they were given stewardship over became 
predators for the first time. And therefore, the garden was now a place of violence. It was no longer a sanctuary, a refuge. It was a place of, of, of fear and, and a place of danger and insecurity. I think that's probably true. Conflict is now introduced into the story at this point. And the rest of the story from here on out is going to be about the hero, the protagonist, bringing all of this fallen world back unto himself. He's now about the business of redemption, of, of, of renewal, of recreation. And the story ends with new creation, right? When Jesus returns. The bookends of the story are creation and new creation. And you may have heard about this part of the Bible, Genesis 3, referred to as the fall of, what's it typically re referred to? The fall of man, right? The fall of man. Well, I would argue it's the fall of creation. You know, when we were in Spain one year on a mission trip, uh, the, the, the facilities guy there said, I need you to go do some gardening work in Spain. And we said, sure, we'll, we'll be happy to. And he gave us these little cloth gloves. They were just tiny little cloth gloves. And he said, there's this big thorn bush. We need you to take it out. And we said, no problem. We got this. And this thing was enormous. It was taller than I am. And it was overgrown everywhere, all the way into the parking lot. And the thorns on it were about that long. We nicknamed it El Diablo. It was awful. By the time we finished getting the plan out, we were cut up from here to here, and those little gloves were worthless. They didn't do anything. And we know from Scripture and from songs that we sing, like Joy to the World, no more let thorns infest the ground, right? No more let sin and sorrow reign, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make the blessing known far as the curse is found. I'm convinced that the plants in the Garden of Eden were all soft and fluffy, and you could just lay in them, and you could eat them, and they were all good. But once they ate the fruit, thorns began to come up from the ground. See, all of creation fell. So pervasive is the power of sin that it infects governments, doesn't it? It infects economic systems. It, it infects corporate structures. It infects anything that has power in this world. But it also affects churches. It affects God's people. It affects everything. This whole world is now pervaded by a sense of death and destruction. Once, what was once good, all creation was good, now is suffering from the same terminal illness of sin. We must understand that. In order to live wisely in this world, we must understand how pervasive is the consequences of sin and what it does for relationships, what it does for structures and systems, and what it does even for churches. So the truth is, we live in a fallen world now. Romans 5, Paul tells us this. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death was a new thing. Nothing had died before they ate the fruit. As soon as they sinned, death became a thing. Their act of rebellion changed everything and we still feel its effects today. It's what Paul's saying here. We must remember that Satan's plan is to destroy us and this whole creation through the power of sin. But there's hope, right? As Christians. We must remember Romans 5 goes on to say later in the chapter, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all people. We're born into original sin. We're condemned the minute we're born. Surely I was sinful from birth, the psalmist says, David, in Psalm 51. 
But just as one act of trespass led to condemnation, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. You see, Jesus said, I've come that they may have life. The thief's trying to destroy us, but Jesus is trying to give us life. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. There's a new Adam. His name is Jesus Christ. He gives us a new way to be human. A new way to exist in the world as a new humanity. Though the outward is wasting away inwardly through Christ, we can be renewed day by day. And the gospel is this, that while we fall short of the parameters that God has put on our lives, though we all fall short of his glory, though we all miss the mark of God's holiness, the standard of Jesus Christ, the good news is that one man has come to atone for those sins of the world. One man has come to make us right with God. One man came to perform an act of righteousness so powerful that all the sins of the earth would be covered by this one act. The cross of Christ is the power by which we can claim confidently that we are right with God, that we are justified before the holy God, that our sins have been washed and we now have been given the righteousness of Christ. So just to close, three key takeaways here from this passage. First, let's, let's realize that our enemy is out there, okay? He's trying to destroy us. It's true. Let's acknowledge that fact today. It's not something fun to think about, but it does help us to live as wise people on this earth. We read in Genesis 4 this week how God told Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It is contrary to you. Its nature is contrary to you. That means it's trying to destroy you, but you must rule over it. Let's resolve to rule over sin in our lives through the power of Christ. Satan is extremely crafty, but our Savior is far more powerful. One little word shall fell Satan. And therefore, the second takeaway is this. Don't let Satan use his tired, old, crafty techniques to shift your attention from all the good things that God's given you to the one thing you're not supposed to have. Let's realize what we have and be grateful. Let's commit to giving thanks for all the many, many blessings that God has given us. I promise you it's a better way to live as grateful people. If you're going to thrive, if you're going to flourish, if you're going to be happy, you must acknowledge the blessings that God has given you. And finally, remember this, that though this world is fallen, and though we live in a world that's pervaded by sin because of, of what Adam and Eve did, that there is hope now in Jesus Christ. He told us that in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Through the cross of Christ, we don't have to fear the power of sin. We know that sin itself is going to die along with death itself one day. That it's not the end of the story. That God has sent his rescuer to redeem the world, to make all things new, to make things right, to give us life instead of death, and to restore ultimately this fallen creation back unto what it formerly once was. A good, a very good creation. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we're able to dwell richly in your word together this year. God, I pray that you would enable us to stand in the power of the cross of Christ against the schemes of our crafty enemy. 
May we reject the lies that Satan is whispering in our ears. May we hold fast to the truth that you have shown us in order that we may have life and in order that we may not be destroyed by the one who is bent on thwarting your purposes for this world. God, we know that though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, that your power still reigns supreme over anything that the evil one could ever throw at us. May we put on the full armor that you offer us, all the spiritual resources that are available to us through Christ this week, that we may stand firm and prevail against all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Lord God, we thank you again for sending the rescuer, that you didn't abandon your creation. Help us to understand your purposes for this world, that you want to redeem it, and may we play our part faithfully in those redemptive purposes. And help us to be grateful. Help us to realize all the good things you've given us so that we may be focused on what you have given us and not what we've been told is not good for us and will lead to death. Lord, we want to be faithful. We want to live more closely into the ways that you have prescribed for us. Help us to do that as we go from this place today. We love you and we pray this in your high and your holy name. The name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our invitation this morning is for everyone. If, if you've never experienced the saving grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never experienced the power of the cross for yourself, then there's no better time than, than to lay down your life right now this morning and come forward and receive Him as Lord. I'd love to talk with you about that here. Or maybe you don't have a church family and you're kind of going through life trying to do it alone. Well, Christianity is a team sport. It takes all of us sharpening each other, even our, our four-year-old daughters who call us out and our, our friends who we do life with here as a family of faith, as a covenantal group of God's people who gather for worship every week. We'd love to receive you into this family of faith here. Maybe you've never been baptized. We as Baptists here believe in believer's baptism, where you come forward to be immersed in water to prove that, that you are making a commitment to die to yourself and to be raised into a whole new way of living through Jesus Christ, the new humanity that he came to bring us. Whatever decision it is that you need to make this morning, maybe it's just to be more grateful. Maybe it's to, to read your Bible through with us in 2017. The plan's online, you can find it on our website. You can find it in the bulletin today. It's, there's apps for it, you can get, it's all there. Whatever it is that you need to decide today, don't leave this place without making that decision. We're gonna stand and sing footsteps of Jesus where we follow, let's stand.